Numbers chapter 16. So we've been making our way through the book of Numbers. We've come to number 16 now, and the focus of our study this evening is going to be from verses 1 to 40. I'm not going to read the whole uh, section, though. We'll just read down to uh, verse 11, and then we'll make our way through uh, the text together. We'll begin by reading Numbers chapter 16, beginning in verse 1 and down to verse 11. So, of course, Moses writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is His and who is holy and will bring Him near to Him. The one whom He chooses, He will bring near to Him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. The man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you? that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to Himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that He has brought you near Him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Well, let's go again to the Lord. Father, we have seen throughout this book time after time where your servants, Moses, sometimes even being challenged by his own family, and Aaron here being challenged by a group of people in Israel time and time again where the people of Israel rebel against your will, rebel against your word and and how you have ordered them, how you have ordered the camp, how you have ordered them to go into the land, how you have ordered them to set aside a particular family to be an intercessory priesthood on their behalf. They are rebelling over and over against Your Word. And yet over and over again, we we see both Your judgments coming upon them and Your acts of mercy in sparing them. Lord, here is yet another one of those cases where you have ordered particularly the the people of Levi to serve in particular ways. And for some of them, that was not good enough. They were jealous for more. And it's a warning to all of us, Lord, that we would not be a people who twist the Word of God and attempt to remake it so that we would be able to do the very things that we are not 
qualified or authorized to do simply because we crave some power or recognition. Father, I pray that we, your people, would would be a people who humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God and always seek to understand how it is your express will and your design ultimately for the good of your people. So teach us this evening, we pray, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do think that it is uh, fitting that uh, we as a church have been thinking together about the office of elders And, of course, looking at what the Bible teaches about the qualifications of elders, one of the things that we have seen is that the Bible very clearly does not allow just anyone to serve as an elder. Uh, Women are prohibited from being elders because elders are to uphold the creation design of male leadership. So Paul says in 1 Timothy that women are to learn quietly. They are to submit themselves to their own husbands and in the church to the elders of the church. We have seen likewise that elders are not to be selected because of some charismatic gifting or some attractive personality that they may have. They are not to be selected because they claim that God has made them preachers. God has given them some divine calling and now it is up to you, church, to carry out that will that only they know to be true. They are not to be selected as some matter of genealogical lineage as if the office of elder is something that is just sort of passed down through the family. You know, my my father was a pastor and so I need to be the pastor of this church. There's there's nothing like that that requires a church to set apart a man to be an elder. Primarily, they are to be men of a certain recognized godly character. If they do not meet those qualifications outlined in passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 1 Peter 5 and others, they are prohibited from serving as elders. Now, uh, in our day, we have, of course, many people and many churches who are not okay with that. That's not sufficient. What God's Word has said on the matter is incorrect, is insufficient, or it's not clear, or it's up for interpretation and debate. There are many who argue, for example, that women should be pastors. And even more radically, it is not uncommon to to find many liberal churches, especially, who pride themselves in ordaining open homosexuals to be pastors, those who are constantly, unrepentingly walking in sin. Right? The very thing that we saw this morning is supposed to bring an elder under the discipline of the church, not what is to place them in leadership in the church. Very often, these, these kinds of actions in churches are justified by taking certain truths from Scripture and twisting them and contorting them so that they say ultimately the exact opposite of what the actually mean and then the arguments or attempts to claim divine approval for their twisting of Scripture. They crave an office that has not been granted to them And they use the Word of God just like the serpent in the garden to deceive and acquire those very offices and positions. Now, this is very much 
just like the kind of thing that we see taking place in our passage from Numbers 16 about Korah's rebellion. This is a chapter that is fundamentally about It is a chapter about men who had been granted all kinds of benefits and blessings from God and yet found them insufficient and desired the very thing that they could not have. It's like rehashing of what happens in the Garden of Eden when God says to to Adam and Eve that they can have everything in the world, everything in the garden, all of the fruits, all of the trees belong to you except this one. And it was that one that they craved. That's very much what's going on here in this chapter. These these men that we will see have been given all kinds of blessings. They have been set apart for the work of God, and yet that's not enough. This is a chapter about the judgment of God. It comes upon a people who flagrantly twist the Word of God. As we will also see at the end, it is a chapter that Though it closes on a dark note of judgment, it does leave a glimmer of light for a redemption that is to come. So we will look at that towards the end as well. Now, this passage comes, of course, on the heels of chapter 15 where God gives various laws about sacrifices and atoning for unintentional sins and Sabbath-breaking. But you'll remember as well that the chapter ends with instructions about the requirement for the people of Israel to wear these blue-stranded tassels. And these, these tassels were supposed to remind them of God's commands, that they were to keep God's commands, and that they were to be a people who were holy to the Lord. It was another visual element among the many visual elements throughout Israelite society that would constantly point the people of God back to God Himself. So that again, it's like As you're living your life as an Israelite, virtually everywhere you look, you're supposed to see something that points your attention back to God and His Word. And chapter 16 is is really doing the same thing. We will see towards the end of this section that once judgment comes upon Korah and all of his rebellious company, the bronze censers that the rebellious Israelites were holding were to be melted down and hammered into bronze plates that would provide a covering for the altar in the tabernacle and later the temple. And if you look towards the end of this chapter in verse 40, the Lord says that these bronze coverings were to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord lest he become like Korah and his company as the Lord said to him through Moses. So we have here a narrative of rebellion that ends in bronze plates being made to cover the altar. And from this generation forward, whenever the people of Israel came to the tabernacle or the temple and they saw the bronze coverings on the altar, they would remember this story. They would be reminded about what happened to Korah and those who rebelled 
with him when they tried to take the priesthood that did not belong to them. They would be reminded that there are grave consequences for disregarding the word of God and for attempting to assume positions in the house of God that have not been granted to you to have. Another visual reminder Reminding them not to rebel and to be faithful to the Lord. Now, as the story begins, we are, of course, introduced to Korah, who is a Kohathite, one of the three major houses within the larger tribe of Levi. And it's important to remember that as a Kohathite, Korah would have had a very important responsibility among the Levites. He was part of the only house who was granted access to handle the most holy things whenever the Israelite people were moving throughout the wilderness. You'll remember back from chapter 4, Kohathites were responsible for carrying things that were in the, 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 the most holy place, like the Ark of the covenant. They were responsible for transporting the bread of presents and the plates and the dishes and the utensils that went with them, the bowl, the lampstand, the golden altar, everything which was in the most holy place. They also had to make sure that the items were covered before handling them. They were not allowed to look them. They could, they could get close to them. They could handle them once covered, but they could not look at them directly. They were given a strict warning about this in Numbers chapter 4, verse 20. The Lord said there, He says, they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. So, so this, this family, these Kohath, they were, they were close. They were close to the most holy things. They were about as close get to the priesthood without actually being a part of the priesthood. They handled these most holy things after they were covered by the sons of Aaron, but again, they could never look directly on them lest they die. Now, this is an important point to remember because the Bible very clearly states that this whole episode of rebellion springs from jealousy. Korah, along with his companions that he's recruited, Dathan and Abiram and some 250 others, they wanted what they could not have. They wanted the priesthood. And the Lord had not granted them the priesthood. Psalm 106, verse 16, speaking on this very account, says, When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Right? They were jealous of the priesthood of Aaron and the office of Moses. And no doubt that jealousy was constantly stirred up and provoked every time Korah and his company, Korah especially, was, was around the most holy things, witnessing the most holy things, at least covered but not able to see them directly. So what happens? Well, the first thing we find in verses 1 to 2 is that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram have hatched a plot and convinced some 250 well-known chiefs to go along with them in it. And these chiefs, uh, this isn't just one. The word says that they are well-known men, right? men of a great name. These are, these are prominent men among the people of Israel, chiefs. They're well-connected, well-respected. Right? They have a good reputation among the whole congregation of Israel. They all hatch a plot 
to remove Moses from his office as God's prophet and to take the priesthood from Aaron's house. And as if that move itself was not bad enough, when they assemble against Moses and Aaron in a very public manner in front of all the congregation of Israel, what do they do? They twist the word of God to try and convince the whole congregation of Israel to go along with them. They're trying to literally steal the priesthood and have all of Israel behind them. Notice what they say with me in in verse 3. We read in verse 3, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, they have taken here two truths that are absolutely right and beautiful and glorious, and yet, what have they done? They have twisted them to imply, to mean certain things that these truths actually do not mean. The first truth we find here is that the whole congregation is holy. Every one of them. They're exactly about that. That's exactly what we had read in Numbers chapter 15, verse 40. Is it not? We read there in verse 40, so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. All of the Israelites are to be holy to the Lord. Likewise, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, the Lord had said there that if his people obey his voice, they will be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Absolutely true. As Korah and Abiram are saying, all of the people of Israel are holy. The second truth that they bring up is the truth that the Lord is among them. That's, of course, what we have seen throughout the book of Numbers, right? God arranges the camp and arranges the tabernacle in such a way that His presence is clearly seen to be among all of the people of Israel. They are not to travel throughout the wilderness unless God goes before them. And when the cloud of the glory of the presence of the Lord comes to rest on the tabernacle, In the midst of them, they stop. The Lord is among them. Both of these statements are true. The problem, however, is that Korah and his company use these beautiful truths to arrive at the false conclusion that anyone can offer sacrifices Anyone can serve as priest, and anyone can lead the people of Israel. And therefore, the restriction of the priesthood to Aaron and his family is nothing more in their eyes than a matter of Moses and Aaron exalting themselves. They arrive at the wrong conclusion about these two fundamental truths. It reminds me so much of how egalitarians often take the glorious truths of the Bible, such as the fact that Paul, what he says of our common salvation, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says there, of course, you'll you'll be very familiar with this text, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Take these glorious truths of our common inheritance in Christ and then twist it and obliterate the qualifications for elders to argue that 
either men or women can serve as pastors. That is the wrong conclusion arrived from a beautiful truth. And the rest of Scripture should guard you from coming to this conclusion. When people do things like that with the text of the Bible, friends, they are joining themselves to the company of Korah. They are doing exactly what he did. So, so then, how does Moses respond to this, what, what is truly an insurrection? Well, one thing he does is that he boldly calls them out on their jealousy. And he exposes their true motives. Look with me down at verses 8 and 10, or 8 to 10. We read there, it says, And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? Right? Like he separates the Kohathites to bring you near to Himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that He has brought you near Him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Moses exposes what is really going on here. They're jealous. They're not content with so great a position that God has already given them. They want more. They want what was given to Aaron and his house. And because of that, Moses says, it is not Aaron that they are warring against. It's the Lord. They're rebelling against The other thing he does is that he sets up what is effectively a showdown. We were reading this last week from 1 Kings chapter 18 where there was this showdown between the prophet Elijah and the false prophets of Baal. And in this showdown, we're going to see who the true prophet is. Is it Elijah or is it these 450 plus prophets of Baal. In this showdown, we're going to see who truly is God. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? This is very much the same kind of showdown that is going on with Korah and his company and and Moses. Moses says to them in verse 5, he says, in the morning the Lord will show who is His and who is holy and will bring Him near to him. In other words, the Lord is going to do a work that shows before all the congregation who his priest and prophet truly is. And he tells Korah and all of his company to bring censers the next morning with fire lit within them. And the Lord is going to reveal who is authorized to burn incense before him and who is not. Well, before we get to this actual showdown, before it occurs, we find in verses 12 to 13 that Dathan and Abiram were not present to receive these instructions. So Moses sends word for Dathan and Abiram to come to him, presumably so that he can tell them what they are to do the next morning. And their response to Moses shows just how motivated with hatred they were for Moses. They refuse to even come to him. They don't even want to talk to him. They don't even want to see him. There's no reasoning with these men. Their hearts are completely hardened with blind hatred. They send word back to Moses. They they tell him through messengers, We will not come up. We're not going to listen to you. And then listen to these accusations that they bring against Moses. Look with me at verses 13 
and 14. They send word to Moses, Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? That's Egypt, friends. They're calling Egypt the land flowing with milk and honey. You've brought us up out of this land to kill us in the wilderness. But you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Moses leading them out of Egyptian bondage is said here by Dathan and Abiram to be an attempt to kill all of the people of Israel. Moses is just a man who wanted to rule over the people as prince. Moses has not kept words to kept his word to bring the people into the land of Canaan even though it was the people of Israel's very own disobedience that landed them under the judgment of God and prohibited them from entering into the land of Canaan. Then they say that this is plain for all to see. This conniving, this wicked attempt to kill the very same people that Moses supposedly is also trying to rule over, right? Sin is very contradictory. (laughs) They say that this reality with respect to Moses is plain for everyone to see. When they say here in the text, will you put the eyes of these men out? Everyone can see this, Moses. Everyone can see what you're trying to do here. And then they refuse to come up. Moses, of course, knows that he is not guilty of a single one of these charges. He's infuriated by them, justifiably so. It's never pleasant to have to be accused of actions and beliefs that are in fact the exact opposite of what you believe and have done. So Moses goes before the Lord and he asks for the Lord to carry out justice on his behalf, to vindicate his name. He says to the Lord, do not respect their offering. The next morning, verses 16 to 19, the showdown begins. Korah, the 250 men with him, bring their censers before the tent of the Lord, and Aaron brings his. The glory of the Lord appears before all of them. At first, the Lord told Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from all of the people of Israel. Again, he's, he's threatening that he's about to just wipe out the entire nation. But just as Moses and, and even Aaron had done before, they intercede for the people. So the Lord responds to that intercession by warning the people of Israel to get away from Korah and from Dathan. Byram and all of the men who were with them. What follows in verses 25 to 35 is how God carries out his judgment against these men. Moses and company go to the tents of Dathan and Abiram, who were, of course, unwilling still to come to the tabernacle of the Lord. And he speaks to all the people. He warns them to separate themselves from these men. Don't be anywhere near them. And he tells them that if God does nothing to these men, if nothing happens today, if everything goes on as usual, if they continue to live their lives just as they have been living, if they they live till they reach old age and they die just like the rest of men die, well, then all the charges that they have brought against Moses and Aaron will have been proven true. 
But he says that if God does something new, if the ground opens up, swallows them up, he says, then you shall know that these men, notice, have not despised me or Aaron. These men have despised the Lord. Friends, that is always the case. It is always the case. Sinful men can come up with all kinds of fine-sounding and persuasive speech to justify their sin. We are experts at self-justification, self-righteousness. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they were not saying that they despised the Lord. They never wanted that. That never came out of their mouth. No, they wanted to serve the Lord, is what they were saying. They wanted the rest of the people to serve the Lord. They wanted all of God's people to see the the universality of God's plans for them. The equality of it all. It was Moses and Aaron who were the great sinners. They had too small a view of God. They had a, a wrong view of God. They thought God could only allow them to serve Him when in fact it was the case that all of God's people are holy. Korah and Dathan and Abiram, right? These were the tolerant men of the day. These were the men who had the, the open, the larger view of, of God. And the men who were really seeking the good of Israel. That's what they're claiming. They're true followers of Yahweh. But again, what does Moses say? He says, if judgment comes upon them, you will know that they actually despised the Lord. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about Aaron. They despised the Lord. And indeed, friends, that is always the case when men twist the word of God to suit their own desires. No matter what justifications are given for it, and no matter how much more Loving, they claim the. They are revealing that the one who they actually and truly despise and the one whom they are opposing is God Himself. And what they want in this effort to twist the word of God is simply another God altogether. A God made in their own image. A God suit their own desires, a God to suit their own purposes. And this is revealed to be the case. What was actually in the heart of Korah and Dathan and Abiram in verses 31 to 35. They, they were men who despised the Lord. As soon as Moses stopped speaking, we are told that the ground then opened up. No doubt like an earthquake that's located in a particular spot. And Korah and Dathan, Dathan's household, and Abiram and his household, all of them perish together in the ground. And then the 250 other well-known men who had lit their censers were all consumed by fire in a judgment that was very much reminiscent of what came upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah when they rebelled against the Lord. And at least for this moment, the Lord made it clear who His prophet was and who could approach Him as priest to serve in the tabernacle. When we pick back up next week, we'll see in verse 41, the very next day, the message didn't stick. And there are still issues at play. Still those who despise the Lord and are opposing Moses and Aaron. But at least for this initial moment, the Lord has shown Moses and Aaron to be His true prophet and priest. 
I mentioned earlier that though the story certainly ends on a note of judgment, there is nevertheless a glimmer of redemption that is here. Dathan, of course we're told, along with his household, were all killed. Abiram, along with his whole household, were killed. These were all men, all families from the tribe of Reuben. And to Reuben had been given no special responsibilities and promises to minister in the tabernacle. As I said in the beginning, that, of course, was not the case for Korah. Korah was a Kohathite. And to this house in particular, God had established certain responsibilities of handling the most holy things in the tabernacle, of serving in the house of the Lord. And he had a peculiar concern for this particular house. The house of Aaron would cover all of the most holy things before the Kohathites ever handled them. And the reason why Uh, The reason this concern is present is is stated in verses 18 to 19 of Numbers 4. The Lord said, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites. That is not my will. Do not allow the line of the Kohathites to be destroyed, Moses. Ensure that Aaron and his sons protect the Kohathites from perishing completely. Verse 19, but deal thus, deal in the way that I have described with them so that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy thing. The Lord had stated that he wanted the Kohathites to remain. And what we find here is that he is, even in the midst of judgment, keeping his promises. Later, in the book of Numbers 26, verse 11, we are told that even though Korah perished in judgment, the sons of Korah did not Dathan and his whole household died. Abiram, his whole household died. Korah died alone. His sons remained. Their father had no doubt left them a name that was now associated with rebellion and with divine judgment. His name had now become a byword. And his actions would forever be remembered each time an Israelite saw the altar of the Lord and the bronze coverings. The the bronze coverings. They would remember Korah and his rebellion. Of course, as the years went by, other events took place within the history of the people of Israel. Eventually, we know that the tabernacle would come to an end. Uh, The whole process of breaking it down and rebuilding it, that would come to an end and and the temple would be built in a single place to stay there in Jerusalem. And generations later, if you had taken your children to the temple, you would walk into the temple and you know what you would hear? You would hear some great singing. You would hear a newly installed Levitical choir singing the praises of God. You would hear talented musicians music and singing songs and leading the people of Israel to praise God. Perhaps you would teach your children to sing along the words of Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
Perhaps you would sing a song in celebration of the Davidic covenant that anticipates the day when the King who is God would rule over the earth, would rule forever and ever. You would sing from Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And you would sing of how this king has a bride. You would sing this love song of Psalm 45. This this bride that the king has. His people whom he loves and, and whom he intends to marry forever. Psalm 45, verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people, your father's house. Leave your father's house and the king will desire your beauty echoes of the very first marriage. You shall leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. The king will cleave to his his bride, his people. Perhaps your son and your daughter would ask, as you're listening in the tabernacle, who are these men who are singing? Who wrote the words of these beautiful psalms? You know what you would tell them in answer to that? You would, you would say to them, these, these are the sons of Korah. These are Korah's descendants. Psalm 42, Psalm 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 84, 85, 87, 88. These are all psalms written. Korah's children, his sons. Their father had despised the Lord. But his legacy was not to be theirs. His story was an altogether different story from what would belong to his children. They would not be those who, like their father, grow jealous for power and position and prominence. They would be those who grow jealous for God. They would be those who who sing as the deer pants for water. My soul pants for You, O God. Not the priesthood. Not the position of prophet. But for You. Their story, because of the promises God had made, ultimately turns into a story of redemption. And in like manner, friends, even though we ourselves are riddled with guilt and have inherited the nature of our sinful father Adam, and perhaps have even come from families that are marked by unbelief and rebellion. Because of the promises of God, because He has promised that all who look to His Son and who serve Him as King will never perish, but will have eternal life, the final witness of our own names, the testimony that is hammered into the stone of the altar does not have to be of one who dies under judgment. But it can be of one whom the King consecrates to be part of His heavenly choir who will sing the praises of His glorious name forever and ever. The testimony of our own lives from now into eternity can be of one who writes new songs to sing to the Lord and who praises Him for His redeeming grace. That is ultimately the hope and the redemption that we have because of the work of Christ. One that 
ransoms us ultimately from the fallen name of Adam and gives us a new name, sons and daughters of Christ. And it's a glorious story of redemption that we can all enjoy and have. Christ. Amen. Well, let's go to the Lord and and close with Father, as we learn from this text, it is indeed a a warning that we are to heed. A warning that when your word gives us commands and instructions to obey, we do not get to rewrite them. Because you are the king. We are your servants. And so we submit to your good and perfect will. We are also grateful that just like the sons of Korah, we do not have to bear the stain of our rebellious father. Because of the work of Christ, we can be redeemed and be joined to the festal gathering in heaven in Zion and await and long and hope for the return of our great King who is God forever and ever. So, Father, I pray that for all of us here that this would be indeed our hope that drives us to be a people of greater faithfulness and obedience, drives us to be a people who desire to make much of your glorious name. I pray this all in Jesus' name.